Welcome to Russian History Retold, Episode 129, The Four Rebellions, A Final Discussion. The piece of music you just listened to will be the new and permanent intro to the podcast. It's known as Promenade from Pictures at an Exhibition by Russian composer Modest Mussorgsky. Last time, we recounted the story of the end of the largest of the four rebellions, led by Emelyan Pugachev. Today, I'm going to look back on the four insurrections in the context of what we know about Russian history today and the world. So what caused these four rebellions to become so large and violent? It can be said that it was because of the harsh conditions faced by the peasants that resulted in the explosion of a hostility towards their masters. But that would be overly simplistic and mask the fact that the peasants represented a small fraction of the fighting rebel armies. The Cossacks played large roles in all of the insurrections, as did tribal interests like the Bashkirs, especially in the Pugachev Rebellion. No, it was more than just bad conditions that played a role in this part of Russian history. One thing that we can say decisively is that the relationship between the centralized government and the average person was undergoing massive change during that time, much like the perceived changes going on here in America. Now, what I'm going to say here may offend some of you, but honestly, there's no intention here. I'm just trying to put historical events into perspective and not making any moral judgment. So if some of you are offended by what I'm about to say, I apologize ahead of time. The majority of the peasant population was deeply conservative and very anti-big government. From the time of Ivan the Terrible through the reign of Catherine the Great, we have a massive consolidation of power into the hands of the monarchy. In the United States, the corollary would be the presidencies of Franklin Delano Roosevelt through Barack Obama. Tea Party conservatives here in the United States want to go back to a time, idealized, that represented a period where people were freer to do what they wanted, with far less government intervention. This is exactly what the Cossacks, peasants, forced factory workers, and tribesmen wanted. The tribal peoples, many of whom were remnants of the Mongol invasion of the 13th century, remembered a time when they were autonomous and able to make their own laws and practice their own religion freely. The Cossacks wanted to go back to the time when they could fish where they wanted to, roam the land, and do as they pleased. The peasants wanted their freedom from slavery, which was becoming more restrictive with each generation. As noted Russian historian Klyuchevsky put it, the state swelled while the people shrank. Today, there were those who, right or wrong, wished to return to a better time. But really, was the past any better? For the peoples in Russia, during the times between 1600 and 1800, things got progressively worse indeed. Serfs were becoming more and more restricted in their movements and lives. Abuse of the people was actually legislated in some respects. The tribes like the Bashkirs and Cossacks were rapidly losing everything they used to, they were used to as well. But was everything really worse than in the past? Mm, not really. The peasants in the 1600s and 1800s did not have to worry about being taken and sold into the worst form of slavery by Tatar, Turkic, and Persian raiders. They also did not have to worry about foreign invaders slaughtering them as they did earlier. Now, I'm not going to justify serfdom in any way, shape, or form. It was and will always be wrong. When Peter the Great moved Russia into the modern era, he saved the country 
as it would have been easily taken over by people like Charles XII of Sweden, and if not then, would have been extremely vulnerable to Napoleon in 1812. In today's world, believe it or not, we live in the most peaceful time in human history. New York City, the town I was born and raised in, is, in 2013, set to have its lower murder rate in the city's history. That fact is pretty amazing given its almost 400-year existence. We have social nets which protect the most vulnerable. We no longer have child labor laws and problems with child labor and many other social improvements. On the other hand, though, we have piles of sometimes horribly unnecessary rules, laws, and hindrances to the pursuit of lives that we want to live. So we're in kind of a difference, not that much of a different situation than we were back in the 17th and 18th century in Russia in the political movements. Now, in Russia, the only ways of making our feelings felt was to flee the situation, something the vast land of the country was easy to exploit, or through open, violent rebellion. In today's world, many countries have open and fair elections, which allow the people to make their feelings heard. In those countries without these freedoms, we still have civil war and violent outbreaks, like we're seeing in Syria today. Enough comparisons. Back to the four rebellions. To the people, the state, as Dr. Average put it in his book on the rebellions, was alien and evil tyranny, extorting taxes, extracting military service, and trampling on native customs and traditions. It neither ministered to their welfare nor defended their concept of justice, nor did it perform any other function which seemed vital or even relevant to their way of life. Rather, it was an agent of oppressive innovation, a giant octopus as they saw it, which stifled their independence and squeezed out their life's breath. Yet, they always distinguished sharply between the Tsar and his advisors. The Tsar was their benevolent father, the bearer of justice and mercy, while the boyars were wicked usurpers, demons in human form who throve on the people's enslavement, to eliminate them, to cleanse or remove them from the land, as rebel propaganda put it, was their devout wish, for only by demolishing the wall of nobles and bureaucrats, they felt, could the ancient bond with the sovereign on which their salvation depended be restored. Wow, what powerful words. As I've mentioned countless times on this podcast, the Tsar was viewed as a father figure. The Russian people could not imagine life without a powerful figure at the helm. It wasn't until Nicholas II came to power that the people began to view him as not caring and lay blame directly on his shoulders, partly because of his leading the war effort and part because of his many foibles. Look at today's Russia. The vast majority of people there admire and like Vladimir Putin, even if some of his policies are questionable. The main similarity I find in each of the four rebellions was that they were never going to succeed because they could not join into a cohesive movement. It wasn't until the Bolsheviks came around that they were able to be successful because they did join the many different groups together, even though they destroyed all the other ones. So, was there anything positive that came out of the rebellions? At first glance, you would think the opposite occurred. The bounds on the people were even tighter than ever. Autocracy was heightened for another century. But all was not lost. The revolts, and in particular the Pugachev Rebellion, scared the nobility to its core. They knew that there was serious need for reforms. At the very highest levels of government, 
there was knowledge that things could not stay the same. This became very apparent when another rebellion occurred in 1825, the Decemberist Revolt, which I'll get to in the future, in one of our next future podcasts. I learned something also very interesting in my research for these podcasts, and that is Napoleon was considered as a savior, and many Russian peasants greeted him, and the man, they thought he would be the man to overthrow the false czar and liberate the people. It even goes so far that some historians even think that had Napoleon offered a general emancipation to the people, as Pugachev had, he might have had better success and might very well have beaten Alexander I. Another effect of the four rebellions was to keep alive the ideal of a revolution that could eventually succeed and bring down the oppressive government of the Romanovs. Alexander Herzen once said that Pugachev was, quote, only a small crow. The real one is still flying high in the sky. The government was aware of this and had their secret police out in full force over the coming centuries. Alexander II, on the eve of his proclamation freeing the serfs, said in a speech, quote, It is better to abolish serfdom from above than to wait until the peasants begin to liberate themselves spontaneously from below. Opponents to emancipation used the opposite argument, claiming that freeing the slaves would be disastrous. Quote, the peasants would begin to kill the landlords wholesale, and Russia would witness a new Pogachev uprising, far more terrible than that of 1773. Of course, this didn't happen, although the peasants were disappointed by the terms of their freedom. Both Razin and Pogachev's name were used to stoke the flames of revolution. Outbreaks of rebellion continued throughout the years, especially during Nicholas I's reign at the time of the Crimean War. Their names were also used after the serf emancipation to rile up the countryside. Terms like University Pugachevs was used by the intelligentsia to define their growing revolutionary ideals. The famous anarchist Michael Bakunin once said of the Pugachev and Razin rebellions were, quote, not the first revolutions in Russia and not the last. He further went on to say, we must ally ourselves with the doughty world of the brigands, who are the only real revolutionaries. The anniversaries of Stenka Razin and Pugachev are approaching. Let us prepare for the feast. How did the Marxists view the rebel leaders? As the father of Russian Marxism, Plekhanov saw Razin, he aimed to, quote, replace the new order with the old, and Pugachev looked backward into the dark recesses of bygone years. They held the common peasant in their backward ways with great disdain, but that did not stop them from using the peasant's anger for their own gains. As Zinoviev would say in 1924 when talking about Lenin's use of the peasants in the Civil War, quote, the joining of the workers' revolution with the peasant war is the most basic feature of Leninism, Vladimir Ilyich's most important discovery. But this is not at all true, as it was the anarchist Bakunin who believed that the rebellions of the future would come from the common man, quote, uncivilized, disinherited, and illiterate millions. If you look back at the three great revolutions of the 20th century, those of Russia, China, and Spain, they occurred in relatively backward countries for their time. All the revolutions linked with peasant wars. 
There were few similarities between the revolutions of 1905 and 1917 and the rebellions of old because by the time the Bolsheviks took over, the Tsarist regime was in dramatic decline, the nobility was worn out, the church was in disarray, and most importantly, the wars that Russia was in at the beginning of the 20th century were going badly, namely Russo-Japanese War and World War I. The insurgencies of the 17th and 18th centuries were during times of war as well, but wars that went well for Russia. The Russian government was concerned about the return of Puga Chevshashina, as was witnessed by Prime Minister Sergei Rite, bringing the possibility up to Tsar Nicholas II when he urged him to sign the October Manifesto of 1905. He said, quote, A Russian revolt, senseless and merciless, should sweep all before it and turn everything to dust. On the eve of 1917, Pavel Milyukov of the Cadet Party warned that unless Nicholas enacted further reforms, that rebellion would come back Pugachev style. And as he said, quote, and God save us from this fire. It would not be a revolution. It would be that terrible Russian revolt, senseless and merciless, an orgy of the mob. On the other side, and with 2020 historical vision, the wrong side, Minister of the Interior Pyotr Nikolaevich Dronovo was dead set against reform. He thought if the Tsar capitulated, quote, afterwards would come the revolutionary mob, the commune, the destruction of the dynasty, pogroms of the possessing classes, and finally the peasant brigand. Would reform have worked in 1970? Probably not. 1905? Possibly would have, but the anger in the countryside and the cities was so high and the regime so weak that it probably would have exploded anyway. The peasants were ripe for another Pugachev rebellion to free themselves from their perceived bondage. But what they got, as we all know, was more of the same. The Bolsheviks just traded them with the Tsar as to who would be their overlord. As for the Cossacks who led the old revolt, well, what they got was the end of their way of life in totality. They were brutally oppressed, first by Lenin and then by Stalin. Two men, the anarchists Machno and Antonov, tried to fight against the Bolsheviks, but eventually succumbed to their forces. Much like Razin and Pugachev, their names lingered on as men who fought for the little people. Another interesting view held by the peasants after the revolution, was that it wasn't the Tsar who was bad as it was his advisors and the elites surrounding him. And the same could be said for Lenin. When the Kronstadt rebellion was underway in March of 1921, they claimed that Lenin was fed up with the government. Quote, but Lenin's cohorts would not let him flee. He is their prisoner and must utter slanders just as they do. So in wrapping up, the rebellions were complex, yet simple in cause. Violent, senseless, and merciless, but the people had little other outlet for their anger and their place in life. Join me next time as I tackle the subject of whether or not Tsar Alexander I really did die in nineteen, excuse me, in eighteen twenty-five, or did he actually give up the throne and reappear as the monk Fyodor Kuzmich, living forty more years? Well, as usual, I hope you enjoyed that. 
Visit my website at www.russianrulershistory.com and join us on Facebook at the Russian Rulers History page where you can leave a comment, make a suggestion, or ask a question. Now, as always, до свидания и спасибо большое.